Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files, it's a story about hair, but really so much more. It's about discrimination. It's about the revitalization of an iconic American city. Let me introduce you to Detroit Blows, a blow-dry salon that's contributing to Detroit's comeback. I think for a city that fell on hard times and had to be patient and had to rebuild new things and new industries and and try and figure out how it crafts um, an existence for itself that's not reliant on a single industry. And we're able to be a piece of that, but also be a model for a business that really has reinvestment at its core. Actress Sophia Bush is teaming up with entrepreneurs Nia Batts and Katie Cockrell as a partner and investor. They say many hair salons are, quote, traditionally segregated places and are committed to building an inclusive space for women of all colors. You see groups of people overlapping and building a community that wouldn't have been happening otherwise because historically those people have been separated into separate areas, spaces, businesses. And that feels like this beautiful, tiny revolution. It feels like a way to steer a ship. Plus, the power of what women can do when they come together and lift each other up. The salon's philanthropic arm, Detroit Grows, funds other female entrepreneurs in Detroit and helps them grow their businesses. I sat down with Sophia Bush and Nia Batts in front of a live audience at the Fashion Tech Forum in New York City. Here's our conversation. I don't think there's anywhere I'd rather be on a Friday afternoon than talking about a city that I love, Detroit, that I've loved and covered for a decade as a journalist, and with two women that I admire so much having learned about you over the last few weeks. So thank you for what you do, and I'm excited to share their story with you. So congratulations on what you've done with your partner, Katie Cockrell, who's in the audience as well, the three of you. Uh, And let's jump in. What would you like to add, Nia, first? Where was the genesis of this idea? I think it very much came from trying to solve for what you want to see in the world that doesn't exist, trying to make sure that you can have an experience that feels inclusive and one that feels accessible. And those are always sort of issues that we've dealt with in a community like Detroit, but that really manifests in different parts of of life and work as well. You have said, Nia, traditionally salons are segregated places. Mm -hmm. So when I read that, I was struck. I never thought about it that way, but then I was really honest with myself and I thought back to, okay, what is it really like for me when I go into the salon? And it's true, but people don't acknowledge that and they don't realize that. When did that become obvious to you and a problem you wanted to solve for? I think people want to feel comfortable. I think that when you go into a salon environment, oftentimes, you know, you you want to feel beautiful, but it may be that you've gone in and you're looking to really transform in some way. You're looking for confidence. Maybe you have a special event. And for me, it was going into a space and really reading the anxiety and the fear that would happen, you know, across 
the, the desk from someone was trying to figure out who to place me with and what really? they were going to be able to do, a stylist that I would sit in their chair and they weren't quite sure how to kind of manage my hair <laughs> and their lack of technical ability really made me think, well, what's, there's nothing wrong with me, but I'm starting to feel hmm. and um, adopt these uh, emotions that don't belong to me. They belong to someone else. And so it was really important for us to create a space and to really hire and train a team that could make sure that anyone that walked in the door would feel comfortable, would feel mm. welcome. And so we've tried really hard to kind of to work that. towards that. Sophia, you've talked about part of the impetus for this business also being the increased cost, like the, the disparity in terms of mm-hmm. costs that women of color often face mm-hmm. in salons. And you said, quote, we decided to turn that offense into a business plan. Mm-hmm. So how did this, the two of you have been friends for a long time, but how did that friend grow in friendship and desire to solve for that problem grow into this? I think for us, there was, there were multiple offenses really. And some of it came from having to be more aware that the world and its service industries don't look like our group of friends looks. Mm -hmm. It is, you know, we're, we're finally entering an era where we're having conversations about the workplace and harassment and race and in, in income inequality and we're talking about what white privilege looks like and right. we're, we're having all these conversations that are very important but I had to recognize that being a woman who looks like me and exists like me in the world and having a friend a friend group that is as diverse and intersectional as ours is also a privilege because there's so much that I am inherently exposed to by my community of women that some women are not And it was always very striking for us that depending on where we would go and who would sort of be the person behind the desk as Nia referenced, you know, a group of us has to get ready for an event and we need to go get a blowout or get our hair done or whatever, that depending on that person's perception, the way that each of us were treated in a friend group was different. Did you see her treated differently? A hundred percent and multiple times. And interesting to see which of our friends who is more white passing sometimes gets a question about their hair texture and sometimes doesn't. It may not be the thing that happened to me, but it happens to me because it happens to my sister. It happens to my best friend. And for us to have conversations about what that looks like and feels like, when Nia said, I have this idea for home, and I think perhaps because my career requires that I'm a nomad, so I have to move everywhere. So places become my home away from home. Her home is my home. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, her parents and I text. Oh, so I it, it, Detroit is not where I grew up, but I love it because it's a home base for my best friend. And it's a place that every time I visit, I fall more in love with. And so when she brought me the business plan for Blows and you know, sat down with Katie and and sat down with me. Katie has much smarter logistical questions. And I was like, we have to do this. This is a moral imperative. I don't care what the hurdles are going to be. And so between all of us, we really got the logistics worked out. But the passion and the necessity was so clear. And I don't think it would have been perhaps as listened to in a larger market nor would there have been two women who I care deeply about investing in their home and me being able to say, your home is my home. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that for us has been a really exciting 
experiment and really endeavor on so many levels. So let me raise your hand here if you have spent time in Detroit and the airport does not count. It has to be two nights plus. That's problematic. That's about like 15 people. Mm. And I couldn't agree more. I went to Detroit first for work on assignment. I was a cub reporter at CNN. Mm -hmm. And here I'm sort of covering the downfall of a city, quote unquote downfall. But what Mm. I found there was beauty. Mm. And then I covered, you know, the the financial crisis and what was happening to the automakers and then the bankruptcy. And then what's been beautiful the last few years has been the revitalization. I love Detroit. And I think all of you should make a point of spending some time there and think about bringing your jobs there and employing people there. And there's brilliant people there. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk to us about the transformation that you are a part of in Detroit and how you're trying to do it. You're right across from the Shinola Yes, right, the hotel. new open Shinola Hotel. And I interviewed Tom Kotsardis, the founder here a few years ago, and what they're doing for Detroit is great too. But what do you hope this brings broadly to Detroit? I think that Detroit has always been a city where we make things and make things happen. It's a maker culture. It's an innovative space. I mean, even when you look at the funding ecosystem and market, you know, we were able to raise from friends and family. We also were recipients of the Entrepreneurs of Color Fund. We run a grant program locally, the Motor City Match Program. There's a unique funding ecosystem of people that want to make sure that good ideas get birthed in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think for a city that fell on hard times and had to be patient and had to rebuild new things and new industries and and try and figure out how it crafts um, an existence for itself that's not reliant on a single industry. And we're able to be a piece of that, but also be a model for a business that really has reinvestment at its core. I mean, for us, we knew that we wanted to build what we wanted to see, and and we did it in a specific way. We knew we wanted to be fully non-toxic. We knew that we wanted to reinvest a dollar from every blowout, a portion of our retail profits through our philanthropic arm, Detroit Grows. And so we're able to make those micro-grants. We're able to really understand where the gaps are in different types of nonprofits working locally for women and girls. Can, and we, that- can we talk about Detroit Grows on yeah. that point for a minute? Because I do think it's unique to build a company as you're building it and starting it, you're also building a philanthropic arm. Like I remember interviewing Tori Birch who talked about the impetus for why she wanted to build the brand was so that she could build a philanthropic arm, which I thought was interesting. You did it at the same time, the two Mm -hmm. of you. Talk a little bit about what it does. Micro grants, for example, helping women re-enter the workforce, which is really important. Mm -hmm. Um, Alternatives for girls. Why was it important for you guys to do that at the same time? Either of you can answer. I think that we've all heard or or been cultured in some way to believe the old adage that you have to launch a company, uh, build a certain amount of success, and then, perhaps build a certain amount of wealth, and then you can be a philanthropist. Yeah. And pardon my French, but I think it's bullshit. Mm-hmm. And I think Nia and I meeting in the way we did, you know, we, be- we became best friends at a social impact conference. She was this badass young executive writing huge corporate checks, doing enormous partnerships. And I was like, oh my God, she's so impressive. And little did I know, she told me later, she was like, I didn't understand why there was one actress at this conference who was like taking really detailed notes. <laughs> like she you are a the nerd. best notes in the room. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, I just, I like school. Um, so for us, having come up, having come into our adulthood in the world of philanthropy and engagement and civic engagement and political engagement, you see that that's a lie. 
And on top of that, when women accrue wealth, they're asked to become philanthropic donors. And when men accrue wealth, they're asked to become financial investors. So we see this disparity as well. And for us, it seems nonsensical. You want to build a company. You want to be an entrepreneur. You have to do a raise. So you're going to do a raise. You're going to be beholden if your company grows and becomes successful to your shareholders. How are you then going to convince them to give away some of your profit? So do it from the jump. Do it from the start. Because as Nia is speaking about, when we make a micro grant, which is very different than the size of the checks you used to write, we are quite literally changing lives of less people, but with no less impact. Mm -hmm. And that is just part of our ethos. Anyone who wants to come into the ecosystem of what we've built as we grow knows who we are. It's not a surprise. It's not a conversation we have to have later. It's not a fight we have to have later. If some company comes in to partner with us, it is who we are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And why not from the beginning build into your business, your impact strategy. Where did the idea come from that you would do it from the start? You know, as Sophia referenced, yeah, I was able to write million dollar checks in my, you know, previous role. Me too, just like on a Saturday. (laughs) Exactly, right? (laughs) And, you know, we're able to fund operations for nonprofits and there should be some businesses with that type of capital that do that work because it needs to happen. But I also realized that small you know, impact matters as well. I mean, we elected a president with small donations. And it's important for people to understand that you don't have to wait to accrue a certain amount of wealth. Mm -hmm. Like, you can make small donations and impacts in people's lives. Mm -hmm. And so even the organizations that we've granted to that weren't specifically individuals, they've been directed towards individuals within that ecosystem to really double down and make sure that our impact is really benefiting people whose stories that we can learn from and, and grow with them and try and figure out how we can meet their needs over sort of the their life cycle. The two of you, correct me if I'm wrong, but have not gone out to raise yet, right? So are you planning to raise money? And I ask you this because I'm also interested in how you're planning to face the almost solely male-dominated venture capital world, which... <laughs> is highly discriminative and mm-hmm. um, I mean just the stories I hear from these women that I interview is just remarkable yeah what do you think Sophia are you gonna do it we have a really interesting growth strategy planned and I think we're very fortunate at least in these stages of our conversations we want to do things a little differently uh, than an average expansion plan and a service-based model might look like mm. and we're lucky to have the ears of some really incredible women who have done this before, who are giving us very stellar advice. What are they saying? Um, one of them, <laughs> Cece said something really interesting to us uh, last time we sat down for lunch with her. She said, you really have to think about what you're doing when you go after VC money because they're marrying you with the intention of divorcing you. Yeah, it's true. And, and I was like, yeah. In X amount of years. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, in, the, in a romantic sense, that is not a deal I would want to take. Um, and it, and it does make you think about the way that you look for capital. And for us, it has influenced the way we're thinking about what our growth looks like. And again, how it is we want to grow a business, not just for the business, but to create a long-term strategy to generate versions of wealth for women. Mm-hmm. Generate versions of wealth for women. So what, what does that look like, Nia, in an expansion setting. And I assume you're looking far outside just Detroit. Mm. 
Yeah, we love Detroit. Detroit is definitely home, and it's been a really incredible experience just even on our block. You know, we're next to a salad spot and a yoga studio and, you know, an art gallery and a sneaker store, and you start to really understand what community means relative to even your retail neighbors and what it looks like to build those spaces that are special, and we've done that in Detroit. And I think that we look to other markets that have some similar qualities, Um, And we also understand that, you know, real wealth is accrued um, through ownership. And what does it look like to then begin to look at real estate investments as well? So helping other women in other cities be owners. Yes. And participating in that process. What does it look like to, you know, think about how we incentivize our employees differently so that if the business is able to become, you know, owners and investors in a different capacity, how does that translate down to the people that actually work in the salon and really make sure? I mean, this comes to the issue of income inequality, which (laughs) I mean, if I could spend every minute of my show every day talking about it, I would. And we do. And a lot of credit to my bosses. We spend a lot of time on it. But this is like the fundamental issue of like, are we as a country okay with this growing income disparity? Are we going to help lift each other up to be owners, right? To to maybe they Mm -hmm. start working, Sophia, in the salon, but they have a way to work their way up. Is that part of this conversation? And what does that kind of profit sharing look like? If the business as as a service model is able to also be an owner of its real estate as we as we expand which is our our biggest goal because who wants to be a renter and get priced out like hi we're in new york city we've all gone through that like i couldn't afford to live in my first apartment that i had here which was a fifth floor walk up and half the size of the stage so it's like we all know it's crazy so when we look at how we begin to solve for what feels crazy, if we become owners of the spaces we expand into, how does that ownership, how in the long term do those profits translate to employee bonuses? What does that look like? How do you prove that model in market? How do you start saying to people, well, there is a different way to do it because we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And that I think begins to sort of toggle the levers on that kind of inequality. And we may not be able to fix the entire United States economy, but if we can do something really interesting within the economics of our own business and show that it's possible, then it's possible. All you, all you need is a first sort of proof of concept. More from my conversation with Sophia Bush and Nia Batts after the break. Two, two full question, Nia. One, c- can you name, are you at the liberty to name some of the other cities you're looking at? And the other question is, um, I will say that this administration has been vocal about um, small business um, investment and some policy changes. So I'm wondering if there's something that the federal government could do that would be most helpful for a company like yours right now. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I can speak specifically to markets that we're looking at. Um, I would say that, you know, I think that there's a lot of great models in New York and L.A., and those are markets that feel pretty well covered. And I think that we were probably interested in, you know, some more Midwestern cities. Minneapolis. (laughs) Love Minneapolis. Love Minneapolis. and so I can't speak specifically to the cities, but what I will say is we also become interested as we learn more about real estate in opportunity zones. Mm-hmm. And yes. when we think about what 
you know, development looks like, we really want to be practitioners of socially conscious retail development. And so, as we were mentioning, sort of the vibe and energy and community on Library Street in Detroit, what does it look like to find the right partner that's interested in doing that in other markets? And you, you walk down some of these streets in, in some cities I've been in, in Ohio, for example, and you mm-hmm. just see different states. I see it in my home state of Minnesota, too, but like shuttered businesses. Mm-hmm. And, you th- and I saw that in Detroit, you know, before a lot of the revitalization. So you think what you could transform form some of those cities into? I think we can't leave them behind. No. I think someone has to be working on mm-hmm. these issues. You know, for us, the salon was always a conduit to conversations and an opportunity to really think about business and community development mm-hmm. differently. And mm-hmm. so we hope that we're able to, to continue to do that as we look at other markets. To and when you start to think about taking that gamble which is really, to Nia's point, just not leaving people behind. When you go in as an anchor tenant on a block, as we did in Detroit, other people see your business and they see what you're building and other interesting businesses come and other interesting groups of people come and other women-owned businesses come. And, you know, we stand in the salon, whether we're hosting a local elected official to give a talk or we're you know, throwing a block party and we see these groups of women all together, meeting each other, talking to each other, speaking on issues, whether it's what's happening in the neighborhood or what's happening in that election that's upcoming or, you know, literally watching each other's babies in the space and the men who start to come in and say like, could I get a, could I get a haircut? Like, can I get my hair conditioned here? (laughs) We're always like, of course, you're welcome. We'd love to have you. And you see groups of people overlapping and, building a community that wouldn't have been happening otherwise because historically those people have been separated into separate areas, spaces, businesses. Mm -hmm. And that feels like this beautiful, tiny revolution. It feels like a way to steer a ship. It, It happens differently because Nia and Katie walked into rooms and took seats at a table that historically has been occupied by yeah. old wealthy white guys. Well, you've said everybody loves to roll their eyes at female entrepreneurs. Yeah. Do oh, they, yeah. Do they do it to you? They think your idea is cute. Oh, for sure. Try being an entrepreneur and an actress. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. People <laughs> I, are like, oh, you speak other people's words. And I go, okay, if you'd like to have a conversation about the geopolitical climate around the world, we can do that yeah. too. It's um, I mean, we, Alba faced something similar with building her company. Like, oh, yeah. It didn't help her in those no, no. raising money. People think it, it's helpful, but it's often quite hindering. Right. And it was incredibly important for us, you know, as three women building this business and as a diverse group of women building this business, the last thing that I wanted, and I've seen this happen, is like, oh, an actress and her friends are doing a thing. So we didn't tell anybody I was a co-founder of the business for the first year. Mm. People knew I was a lead investor, and that was it. That's it. And you guys walked into rooms, and I mean, they handled these meetings like the bosses that they are. I was just like screaming from the wings. (laughs) What's the craziest thing that happened to you when you walked into one of those rooms? Mm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, we had someone that told us we weren't going to get very far with the name that we couldn't put a great name on a, you know, on the exterior of a building in Detroit. We had to remind them that we are a blow dry salon <laughs> and that that's, it's a, you know, a testament to our core service of blowouts, but also to, you know, the blows that our city has withstood and yes. mm-hmm. we're resilient and we, 
take up space and our you know name on the side of our building is our right to exist and for people to feel like it's a safe haven and you know when we think about going into other communities like we want to make sure that that energy permeates there as well you've said Nia there are times when frankly it would have been easier to quit did Mm. you almost were there moments that you almost walked away go back to that cushy million dollar check (laughs) corporate job writing million dollar checks yeah, for yeah, others, yeah. not receiving them <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah I mean you have really tough days you know especially for us like we're first-time entrepreneurs in a space that you know we're not native to and so everything was new the very the learning curve for me as a CEO is very high you know managing different type of talent like that often know more about the business model than you do and so yes there were definitely hard days but I think you know, the three of us never all wanted to quit at the same time. That's right? good. You have a bad day and you just Detection you numbers. go to sleep and you wake up and you try again. And you yeah. realize when you walk into the salon that we have incredible people that are there that are having a great day. And, and they then, rely on you, by the way, yeah. for their livelihood. And yeah. we and we begin again every day and we're learning and growing. And we're really excited. We have the opportunity to well, do that. let's talk about some of the language that we use as women. You've spoken, Nia, about saying, I'm sorry, or I think, or this may be a stupid question but like apologizing and I'm just interested in you as a female CEO Mm -hmm. and how I I know I try but I still do it all the time at work I'm like did you just have a second I'm so sorry to ask this but yeah why do we do that I don't know I think it's just everybody has a little bit of imposter syndrome I think like you go into a room and it's like is it okay for me to be here like especially if it's a new idea you're flexing new muscles and so I've really had to in my previous role and even now just really um kind of relax into the the passion and energy that underlines our business mm-hmm. and just make sure that I know that I'm there for the right reasons. And I think that's what's made the difference. You can go into a boardroom sometimes, but if you're not passionate about what you do, mm-hmm. you don't fight for it the same way. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. we're so incredibly passionate about what we've built and what we want to build. And I think that energy has sort of given us a confidence. Do you, Sophia, ever feel that imposter syndrome as a business leader and elaborate on that with, you know, what, what you've said, we've been sold this story that there's not all that much room for women. Mm. We've woken up to the lie that we got sold. Mm-hmm. Because I think for a very long time, the powers that be have encouraged women to view other women as their competition. You know, if one woman's going to get promoted, if one woman's going to get that job and it's nonsense. There is no such thing as a finite bucket of success. There just has to be a redistribution of control. Mm -hmm. And part of the way that we take that is actually by collaborating instead of competing. There is not a woman in this room that I don't want to see succeed. Mm -hmm. I want that for all of us. And I think it's been an incredibly important thing for us in the minutia. You know, if one of us is like, we're never going to figure this out. And the other two can say, we, you know, we got it. That's important. And it's important on larger stages as well. Mm -hmm. And I think something is happening, this reckoning that has been happening. Women are looking at each other and realizing that so many of us have been through so many more of the same things and that we're all really on each other's team. Mm -hmm. And we feel that energy in what we've built. We feel that energy when we go out and talk about our business. It translates in new ways. Collaboration creates a passion. And I think that's why we're so scrappy in a room. Mm -hmm. We're like, no, we're gonna build this business. We're gonna build it in Detroit. This is how we're gonna treat our employees. This is how much money we're gonna give to charity. And we're gonna prove to you we can do it all. (laughs) Because we really believe in it. And 
you know, the, the growth strategy might look different and some person might analyze the numbers and say, well, why aren't there six salons yet or whatever? But for us, it's been about gestating this thing properly and it's working because suddenly, you know, we're flying here and we're doing this and we're speaking at FTF and we just talked to Forbes and did an interview with The Economist and I'm like, what's going on? That's where my imposter syndrome comes from. It's, it, it feels like, oh, is it, do, do other people know it works? I mean, we think it works. And the irony being that I actually feel more comfortable talking about our business, going and talking about politics, talking about social service. You want to see where I have the worst imposter syndrome? Like, come with me to the Golden Globes. I'm a basket case. <laughs> I'm just like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing here. What do I say to Jennifer Lawrence? Like, she's famous. And Nia will be like, are you stupid? You're famous. I'm like, not like that. I feel like a 12-year-old kid. You know, I'm still looking well, out of the but, same eyes of the kid who was nervous to go sit with the other girls at lunch. But maybe that's because this is the... This is what you were meant to do, Sophia. Maybe you got mm. famous and became an actress, but mm. what you have grown into as a woman mm. is a boss. I mean, okay. <laughs> I'm yeah, I know. Agree. Th like, this feels like home and that feels there like you work go. for sure. There you go. Does yeah. this feel like home for you, Nia? It does. You know, it's, it's definitely a new experience and it's exciting and you know you definitely you have days that are hard but you want to be solutions oriented and it feels like we're on an adventure and it feels like a very important one well this is the beginning i'm excited to interview you guys in five ten years when you know maybe you're like my boss and you know and you're you're helping run the world of big corporations but let's just i i would do want to take a moment to talk about not only how big you want to build this, but the environment you want to build. Because, you know, without getting into details, you've been through hell and back professionally, mm. Sophia. Okay, people can read about what you've had to live through. And that's just an environment that I just think if women were in charge, just would never have been built and never been allowed. And That's I'm why so I just produced my pilot. Well, they're good. I was like, I'm yes. a star in it and produce it. <laughs> yes. I set the tone on because this. Because you yeah. set the tone yeah. and you build it. And now as and business And we do that leaders, in our business. So talk about the commitment you have to building an environment as your business grows where no woman has to go through that. What are the core values? What do they need to be? It's our business is a support system. Mm -hmm. We build a community where, yes, it's, it's a, it's a service-based industry. We expect excellence so we can offer excellence, but in order to do that, there has to be vulnerability to flexibility, emotion, and circumstance. And for us, you know, just two weeks ago, Nia called me. I was in LA. She was in Detroit and on her way out because we had some meetings on the West Coast. And she was talking to me about something that one of our employees had gone through. And it was something so small, but Nia's mom gave her a ride home. And just to do that, mm -hmm. to say to our community of women, you need a hand right now. And my mom is your mom. My yeah. best friend is your best friend. Yep. I mean, we even had a team member this morning, unfortunately, that had a death in the family. And we have actually our incredible team here. They're in the white space and mm -hmm. they also have been doing all the glam for the event, mm -hmm. which is such a fantastic opportunity. So we do have to thank Karen Harvey and everyone from yeah. Fashion yeah. Tech Forum. So are for they allowing the ones that did? Yes. I yes. love that. Because we're able to bring them here yeah. because their stories are ours. It's been while this person in our salon at home is dealing with a the loss, they're taking turns and speaking to her on the phone and making sure that she's okay and trying to figure out what we can do. And that's just the energy and the community and the family that we've built in the salon. And I feel very proud of that and of them. 
gonna <laughs> get weepy, but mm-hmm. they're the reason why we do yeah. it, and they very much help us sure. set the tone. Mm. To have a place where you're excited to go to work, yeah. and you know that who you are, rather than what you produce, mm. is recognized, yes. changes everything. And it sounds small, but it isn't. Because when we commodify people, and when we turn people into products, mm. we crush spirits. Mm. And that can happen, as you know, on sets where there's a turnover that's expected, but it happens in every industry. It happens in corporate. It happens in beauty. It happens in whatever industries everyone in this room works in. Mm-hmm. And, and it, yeah. to begin that cultural change, to make people feel safe enough to be expressive isn't as hard as everyone thinks it is. And when it's authentic, it's good for business also. You know, salons have very high turnover rates. And for us, you know, we've been open 18 months and we have members of our team that started with us and are still with us that Mm -hmm. are here today with us in New York. And so it's also important to make sure that you're investing in your workplace culture and community because it's also investing in your business. So you're not going to get out of here without a political question because, you know, my day job is (laughs) CNN. But it's not going to be the political question, you think. Who wants to run for public office? Sophia, you've talked about... What, out of us? Yeah. Oh, I was like, what do you mean? You two, <laughs> out of you two, because you've, I've read that you have hinted oh. at potential interest in running for public office. I mean, we definitely have talked about it a lot. I, I think, look, I think it's a strange environment when, uh, and yes, I, you know, I was a journalism student and did a lot of political science study and have worked in politics for over a decade, but it's a weird thing that someone whose day job is to be a performer knows more about foreign policy than the president. It's a twilight zone that we live in. So I do get asked a lot of questions now when I'm speaking to things and someone goes, interesting, you, you know the data behind this. It's not that hard to look up. Um, but so people say, do you want to run for office? And I think that might be something I'd like to do eventually. Um, I'm certainly not closed off to it. She tells me I should do it all the time. And I'm like, you do do it. You're so smart. You run for office. So maybe we'll run together. I don't know. We'd be a good ticket. Maybe we run together. (laughs) You know? There is a 2020 thing coming up. I just, yeah. I think that bucket is real full of names. (laughs) We talk about it sometimes on our network. Yeah. I think it's great to just have so many passionate (laughs) leaders that are in the the race. Mm. I mean, we have to work within systems and we have to work sometimes, you know, around them and in tandem with them. And I think it's important to find candidates that are really passionate about doing the work and that understand the system and how we can help it evolve. And so I'm definitely um, in favor and a fan. Were you born to be in it? I was not born to be in it. I like being around it. I like being around (laughs) it. But I think some people are born to be in it. And I think that I look forward to seeing what Sophia's leadership looks like as, you know, a co-founder in business, a a partner in life, but um, also in the in the political room. Well, we'll watch and uh, (laughs) and cheer you guys on from the sidelines. Thanks for what you're doing for Detroit Mm -hmm. and for women. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.